Hello, and welcome to our final episode of the Chemistry at University podcast, a series aimed at A-level students in the United Kingdom who want to learn more about studying chemistry at university. My name is Max Saylor, and I'm a third-year chemistry undergraduate at Durham University who studied maths, chemistry, and physics at A-level. In the final episode of our six-part series, we shall hear the second part of my interview with Professor Judith Howard, a professor of crystallography at Durham University. In this episode, we shall discuss the basic principles underpinning X-ray crystallography and have a further look at the history of the field and where the field might go in your lifetime. Don't forget, for the last time, to check out the PDF handout associated with this episode, which can be found in the episode notes. Uh, now, before we get to the interview, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the principles that underpin X-ray crystallography, so you'll have a better idea of what we're talking about in the interview. So the first thing you need to be aware of when, when we're talking about X-ray crystallography is, is the concept of, of diffraction. So if you study A-level physics, you'll, you'll be aware of this by now. But, but for those of you that don't, diffraction is the phenomenon where a wave spreads out after it passes through a small gap. So, so the best way to understand this is to visualize it. And, and you can see this in, in the handout in, in figure seven. So, so you can see that, that as the wave hits the slit, it, it then spreads out on the other side of the gap. So, so I've also shown how this happens with waves in the sea passing through a gap in the harbour. You can see this in figure eight. So, so as the waves hit that, that small gap in the harbour, that they, they, they diffract, they spread out. Now, you, you, you'll be aware that electromagnetic radiation, such as light, or, or crucially in the case of X-ray crystallography, X-rays, uh, can, can act as waves. So... So light and x-rays, when they pass through a slit, they will also diffract. So the basic principle behind x-ray crystallography is that we, we pass a beam of x-rays, so electromagnetic radiation, through the crystal, and as the x-rays pass through the crystal, they will diffract. Uh, this, these diffracted waves then, then emerge from the crystal and, and they interact with each other. So they interact with each other constructively or, or destructively, and now I've included some further reading in the handout if, if you're unfamiliar with the idea of constructive and destructive interference. But basically what happens is, is the emerging beam, after it's had all this interaction, it will hit either a photographic film or in modern days now we use electronic detectors. And you'll get a diffraction pattern, which is basically a, a, series, a series of spots. We, we then take this diffraction pattern and we use maths and we work backwards to determine the structure of the crystals. So today you'll hear Judith talking about the Braggs, and, and by this she's referring to William and Lawrence Bragg, who were a father and son, and they were, they were two scientists who formulated all the maths used in crystallography back in the 20th century. If you study A-level physics, you might be familiar with Bragg's law, which is the key concept that underpins the maths behind crystallography. So I, I've summarised this all in a diagram that you can see in figure 9, and, and this shows how it all works. So you can see how we shine the x-ray beam through the mounted crystal, we then get diffraction, and we then take this diffraction pattern and work backwards. So, so that should give you enough context as to how x-ray crystallography works, and we'll now take these concepts and talk to Judith more about it. We're now going to focus on the, the field of crystallography itself, which obviously you've sort of touched on what it, what it can entail. Um, so could you start by giving me a quick overview of sort of what at a, at a fundamental level crystallography is, uh, why it's important and sort of the beyond what you've already said, just sort of the general interests you have in the field? 
Well, crystallography is a technique the, that um, uses diffraction theory. And what the, 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 what we do is that we take very small crystalline samples. I mean, they do need to be crystalline. They could be microcrystalline, which is basically what a powder is. If you think about a powder, uh, it actually is formed, not always, but if it's to be used in diffraction methods, it has to be microcrystalline. But we would be using in single crystal work um, a very small sample, crystalline sample. And we can use much smaller samples today because if you like, we can turn the brightness of the beam up. If you were using an X-ray lab source, then the sample size is so and so much, much, much less than a millimeter. It's really quite small, as I said, grain of salt or something like that. Uh, if you were using synchrotron radiation, which is much brighter, then you can use smaller crystals again. I mean, I can come onto that later, but so the idea is that you, you have to fix your very small crystal. And usually what we do is to mount it on something like, um, a, a, a fiber of glass. I mean, it's it's about as thick as a hair, human hair, but it is it's rigid, so it's you can pull a fiber of glass, mount the sample on that if it's not unstable. That is, um, and then you focus a fine beam of X-rays onto that sample, and record the diffracted, the scattered radiation. Now that's recorded. Either, well, it used to be photographically. Today it's more digitally, uh, and of course it's it's faster, different, you can do different things with methods, but the, the, the pattern of scattered radiation is what you need to unravel to determine the molecular structure. If you think about what we see around us all day long, the light is reflected from the sample, we, our eyes are clever enough to recombine it, we get the image on the retina. If you can't see something by eye, you need a microscope to look at it, and the lenses in the microscope are varying strength and so on, this allows you to see how smaller sample. You can see the small, we use microscopes to look at the crystals, to pick out our best ones, to decide if we know anything about them before we start. And that's sometimes the case, it's not just color, but that can tell you quite a bit, certainly it's in inorganic chemistry. And we use the microscopes as a way of manipulating the sample and, and mounting it uh, before it goes onto the instrument where we shine the x-rays at it. Um, but of course we can't see inside those crystals. And that was the excitement that Dorothy felt when she heard Lawrence Bragg talking about seeing atoms many, many years ago when she was younger. Um, and that's true. It's, you know, the thought in, you know, the 1920s or something, 30s, of hearing that you could perhaps see atoms was really exciting to a young student like Dorothy. But the Braggs were influential in unraveling the mathematics we need that enables us to take a scattered pattern uh, and then turn that into a molecular structure. And obviously, if you make something new, you want to know what it is. But it's not just what it is, what shape it is, which atoms are connected to which. And I sometimes use the analogy of, imagine that you, you're shut outside a, a room and you're told that there are five chairs, two tables, um, a couple of stools, a picture or two, and to work out what juxtaposition they are without going into the room and having a look. And that's what you're doing with X-ray crystallography. You're trying to find out where the atoms are, how they're connected to each other, which one's connected to which. You can work out a lot of that, obviously, from spectroscopy before you even start the X-ray experiment. But you may not be able to, you may not be correct in all the assumptions. 
but you certainly can't get the geometric details. So what we're doing is we're measuring the distances between the atoms. We're looking at the interbond angles. Um, and all these things are important when it comes to structure property relationships. And when you think about it, all our school textbooks, our undergraduate textbooks, they're full of pictures. That's what chemists love. They love the molecular structure drawn out as pictures or in if it's, if it's in the solid state, it's, it's, it's boxes and cubes and where the atoms are. That's our job. That's what we do. I think um, two, two really interesting examples to pick up on there, which will be relevant is firstly, um, I think sodium chloride is a great example. It's something we've, you know, a lot of our listeners will have been told it, it's a lattice at GCSE and A level, but actually how we know that is X-ray crystallography. And I think yeah. in several interviews I've heard you give before, um, I think several people picked up on how scientists used to think it was molecular. And when it was first told that it was a, a lattice, everyone was like, no, that, that just, that's not true. That, that can't be true. But now it's taught to kids as young as 14 as being scientific fact. And I think, you know, that just to really show our listeners how, how, how influential it is. Uh, and also bond lengths, you picked up on how do we measure bond lengths? I remember one question I had when I was a GCC student is we have these tiny values. Well, how do they measure it? Do we have rulers that are that small that we can use to measure these tiny things? And actually, you know, again, it's, um, it's this technique that allows us to do that. So I think just to give everyone an idea of how, how influential it is. So uh, sort of the the, the, the general message here is that basically we can shine x-rays through a crystal of something. We get diffraction and we get these patterns which we can then use complicated maths uh, to work backwards and deduce the structures that, as you mentioned earlier, we see in our textbooks and we, we see on the covers of our textbooks. We sort of work backwards from these patterns to, to determine what's causing them effectively. Yes, I mean... It the spectroscopy goes a long way towards telling us what we've made, but it won't give you the geometrical detail and it won't give you the detail of the um, electron distribution between the atoms, which is interesting for some of us. I, I worked on that quite a lot. Um, but and the so the, I think our textbooks would look immensely different if we hadn't uh, discovered the technique of X-ray crystallography about a century ago. And it's come a long way since then. I mean, you'd hope it was developed for more reasons than just <laughs> than just that. Drawing textbooks, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, but it is an advantage of it. There we go. Um, okay, thank you. That's a really, really interesting overview into how how we actually know so much of what we do. So I think that the, the final thing is, you know, you mentioned how just you know even over your career, just how much things have developed. You know, that the rapid acceleration which I'm sure is true over lots of fields, but especially for crystallography. So sort of looking forward and looking to the scientists of the future, which, you know, hopefully some of our listeners are, where, where do you see this field going? You know, what, what developments do you see over the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years? Well, I think I might've mentioned earlier that we, um, we now have synchrotrons in many parts of the world. They produce for us a very, very bright X-ray beam which enables us to do experiments that we couldn't do before. Uh, it enables us to collect a lot more data, in particular from the sensitive biological materials, because it used to be the case when you needed not just a lot of time, but a lot of different crystals to, because the X-rays would kill this more sensitive biological samples. Uh, it's partly, I mean, partly true today, but you can, by lowering the temperature and a highly intense beam and very fast detectors, you could get a lot more data in a much shorter time. 
And so that leads you on to thinking about, well, maybe we can see sort of reactions inside a sample. Um, in, in other words, doing real-time experiments. Now, that is, that is a possibility. Um, we've tried it in, in some things, but not exactly quite real-time. You do need a synchrotron. You can't do it in the lab exactly. And the other advance, of course, we have the X-ray free electron lasers. These are even more bright beams, if you like. And what the, uh, the experiments they're doing now is really effectively dropping a spray which contains tiny crystals through the beam and recording, you know, mega petabytes of data. I mean, hundreds of thousands of, of data points, which don't all come from the same sample. So it's a challenge, huge challenge with these big data sets to know how you can recombine these many, many data points into diffraction from the molecular structure or the biological structure you're trying to unravel. So it, it, there are some really big challenges um, from the instrument side. Um, the, one of the big challenges for the biological um, crystallographers are the membrane proteins because they don't all crystallize. So what are we going to do about those? And there's, of course, um, a recent Nobel Prize awarded in this country was, of course, cryo-EM, so cryo-electron microscopy. And they are getting better and better resolution so that you don't just see effectively a blob in the electron microscope. Um, you're getting close. Well, it's not atomic resolution, but it's getting, its shape is getting more obvious. Um, but of course, it's, it does rely on the fact that you can take the sample to low temperatures. Uh, and that's another challenge for, in particular, the biological uh, crystallographers. There are, I think the experiments that we can do in chemistry are endless in a way, as I mentioned before, structure property relationships. This means changing the uh, temperature over a large range, over time, over short time, over long time, to seeing whether the whether you can determine by the change in the structure over the temperature range, how that relates to the, what you know is the change in the property. And those can be then, I mean, if you're interested in making devices out of a new molecule that you've made, then you need to know, is it robust? Is it, is it cyclable? Will it work in the Sahara? Will it work in, for the Eskimos? I mean, there are all these things. Will it um, stand being transported around the world. I mean, we, we know of very recent times that, of course, that the uh, Pfizer vaccine needs to be kept very cold, otherwise it can't be transported. Um, so there are reasons for knowing uh, these sorts of details. And I think the um, we've also discovered doing it ourselves is depending on the rate at which you increase the pressure in order to grow a crystal from a liquid by increasing the pressure, the rate at which you do that can change the polymorph that you produce. And one of the big um, fields I think crystallography is applied to uh, commercially is looking for various polymorphs in the pharmaceutical area. Because of course, this is big bucks when it comes to um, litigation on whether or not a, a patent has been infringed by a, a generic company against the big boys very often. And the polymorph that you think you may have got the patent on may not be, of course, it may be the best one to use for the drug, but it may not be the only one. And it may not be the only one that 
works either. But there's there's a, a lot of work to be done still in, in that area, um, driven by the pharma companies, uh, whether we make solvates, whether we make salts, how bioavailable these are with the polymorphs are different. Um, solubility of them and also the way in which they crystallize because if you imagine you're doing commercial work and you want to flow a whole load of uh, drug material in pipes and tubes to, to put it wherever it needs to be in the next step of the process if you've got long thin needles they're likely to get crossways in the tube get stuck it, it's the formulation of them that's, that's and the morphology of them is important so there are there are it's not a question of where crystallog of itself is going, how are we using it? How, we, how can we better use it? Um, and people will always have ideas about what they can do. And, and you'll never, you know, everybody who makes any chemist that goes on in the synthetic area wants to know what they've made. So there'll be plenty of um, new structures to unravel and to enjoy. Um, some may not be what you wanted, um, but they can still be interesting. I think that summarizes chemistry. It might not be what you wanted, but it's, but it's something. So. Interesting. Right, that's perfect. Thank you. So I think that really just shows, you know, how 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 wide a field it is. And I think one thing I wanted to pick up on there was that that you mentioned changing properties with with temperature, which I think links into something that some people might be familiar with, which is the idea of, of superconducting materials. So the idea of a material being able to conduct with, with no resistance at all. And we have materials that can do this at very low temperatures, near zero Kelvin. And it evidently would be revolutionary if a material could do this at room temperature. For example, the savings in terms of energy efficiency alone would be massive. But but we've yet to find any material that superconducts anywhere near room temperature. And I'm, I'm sure from what you've said, there, there's a lot of work being done by crystallographers in this field. Uh, but, but anyway, I thought this was just a nice link back to a real world problem that, that chemists are trying to solve. Yes, and I think one of the difficulties is that we can find out a lot of detail. I mean, minute detail of molecular structure and the sort of materials that um, a lot of uh, synthetic chemists work on. But is that property that we are chasing, is it a bulk property? Is it something that um, we need to have very, very thin layers of the, of the whatever you're making? Um, there's a lot to be done in there. And of course, physics approach this from a different point of view in terms of in particular superconductivity, but again, it's fascinating. And of course, I didn't mention that crystallography, or crystallographers, should I say, can come from many, many fields. It's, I mean, biology, geology, engineering, mathematics, chemistry. It's, it's a very widely applicable technique, um, and it has huge industrial importance. Uh, it's used in sort of effectively sort of non-destructive testing in some ways looking at airplane blades and, um, and turbine blades and so on that's quite a bit of that's done with neutrons but so there's you know if you do a study or if you become a crystallographer just for two or three years you can then apply yourself to loads of different fields um, and it does mean that you at international meetings you're always meeting interesting people with applications in an area that you hadn't thought about necessarily and we're all using the fundamental um, uh, theory of diffraction. Brilliant. I think that's a, that's a great comment to end on, just just showing how how broad a field it is and how fascinating it can be. So, thank you very much for telling us all about this um, 
this this wonderful field and um, i'll put some supplemental information in the episode handout for, for people who want to learn more and i know you've given many interesting talks yourself which i'll also link if people um would like to hear more so uh, thank you very much judith thank you max i'm afraid that's all from the chemistry at university podcast the aim of this series has been to show you what studying chemistry at university is like i wanted to show you what you might learn at university what research is going on in the field and what a career in academic chemistry might look like. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics that we've discussed, then I encourage you to go over the resources and exercises in the handouts. As a quick recap of what we've covered in this series, we first focused on inorganic chemistry and spoke to Professor Jonathan Steed. In these episodes, we touched on crystal field theory and looked at how scientific publishing works, along with Professor Steed's career, background and research. In the second part of our series, we focused on organic chemistry and spoke to Professor Anne-Maria Donoghue. We spoke about the vast number of fields that her research covers and how she and her research group determines the arrow-pushing mechanisms that you'll be learning at the moment for your A-levels. We also went into detail about how we can use isotope labelling along with mass spectrometry to determine these mechanisms. Finally, in the last two episodes, we looked at physical chemistry and spoke to Professor Judith Howard, a professor of crystallography. Last episode, we spoke to her about her career and background, and I then taught you about surface tension, a physical chemistry concept that you might cover at undergraduate level. In today's episode, we spoke to Professor Howard about how crystallography works, and what it's used for, and where she thinks the field will go in the future. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I've had a great time talking to professors around the department at Durham, and I've learnt tons of things that I didn't know when I started. So I hope you've also found it informative, and even if you don't plan on studying chemistry at university, that you've learnt something new and interesting. Thank you once again for listening to this series, and I wish you the best of luck in the future, whatever you decide to do. Thank you.